says recording. Okay, good. Hello. If that's a, a blooper, it doesn't matter because I believe that our followers are so dedicated, they allow the bloopers and my erratic behavior. Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. We have a return guest to that today. We're too excited. Our friend, Deb Freeman. Now, hello, Deb. Hi. Yay. I'm so glad to see you. We're so glad to see you. Now, I need to, I'm not sure I can even encase all the things you do, Deb, but I will try. The reason Deb is here is that we had her as a guest before. She told us about her watermelon seed journey. And I immediately, I just think of Deb as a food anthropologist. Okay. And you are, she's a, it's a historian isn't a big enough word, but Deb is a writer and a, a researcher. And she's just, she really gets into a subject and she says it about herself. She goes down the rabbit hole, which I absolutely love because, because Deb having suffered with ADD my whole life, when something does capture my imagination, do you know what I mean? I mean, I'll just, I just keep talking about my husband and I started watching uh, Becoming Elizabeth. This is about, of course, Queen Elizabeth, the Tudor. I mean, you know, the original. I've seen every movie about her. I just start talking about it at breakfast and he says to me, thanks, honey, I know that. <laughs> so, but I love it because I love subjects. Now, so today, Missy, you talk about what you like, but I need to say this. And if you don't follow Deb on Facebook, it's Deb Freeman. And of course, Cindy puts up all information. You really want to, because she posts the, the writing and the work that she's doing on Facebook so you can follow her. And it's just fascinating to me. Uh, and you were talking about this the last time you hear freedom, finances, and fried chicken. Absolutely, absolutely. This one did take a lot of research, a lot of time, and a lot of love, but um, I'm so very proud of this work and, and so, so thankful to Eater for publishing it. But yeah, so basically, it's you know a little bit of history about American fried chicken. And I think that we, that's something we take for granted. It's so amazingly American, it's associated with us. It's a common thing that pretty much everyone eats if you're not vegetarian. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, but it is one of those things where everybody knows about it, but do people think about where it comes from and that history? And so I, it's important to say American fried chicken because people in Scotland were frying chicken and you know in Africa, although the techniques were slightly different, um, but coming to America, you know, and so we're talking late 1700s, you know, that's enslaved women, Black women who are, are preparing this and making it into this global sensation that we all know and love. You know, Deb, one of the things that turned the key in my head, to, which is why now this entire explosion about the history, Black food, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, and it's been, you know, it's been happening for the last few years. But I thought, who put it so succinctly years ago was Jessica Harris, Dr. Harris, when she said, who do you think was in the kitchen cooking all that food when America started? I mean, it was so simple. And I remember that was the first time, seriously, and I'm, that the light bulb went on in my head and I thought to myself, well, of course she's absolutely right. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, 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 
I'm not saying that I'm stupid. I'm just saying sometimes all of us need to be more aware about the history of where things come from. I think it would help us all to, you know what I mean? It's, and it's fascinating. Yeah. So, so tell me, how did you, first of all, how did it come about? You just all of a sudden said, I'm going to learn everything I need to know about fried chicken. Because I you know you, you kind of did that with the antique seeds from watermelon. Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of how it came about because I started, well, I thought, first started thinking about it, I learned about the waiter carriers, which are women in Gordonsville, Virginia, um, in the, after the Civil War. And they would basically sell fried chicken and biscuits and pies and in baskets above their heads. And when the train would stop at the station, this is pre-air conditioning. So the windows are down. So you're smelling, you know, this, this fried chicken, you're smelling the baked goods and you're smelling that stuff. And eventually Gordonsville became known as the fried chicken capital of the world, thanks to these women. And so then I started thinking, okay, so wait a minute. So <laughs> we're post-slavery. These are women who are putting food on the table, who are, you know, supporting their families by using these, their talents, not just skills, but talents. Yeah. And so what then where's this coming from? So where's it come from? And that's kind of what sparked the entire thing. And so delving back and finding records to fried chicken in the late 1700s in Virginia. So that's insane to me. Um, yeah. So so one, it started in Virginia. Fried chicken started, I know. you know, I'm a proud Virginian. So I have and to talk about so. it. And rightly so. <laughs> and so in taking it one step further, just exploring just how black women really have made careers and, and be able to support themselves through fried chicken. And honestly, to kind of end it up, it's not something that we should be ashamed of. There, you know, there's a whole, you know, there was a whole um, time where that was kind of lampooned and, and there was a lot of propaganda around basically making fun of black people for eating chicken. And it's, it's like, I mean, first, that's incredibly racist and wrong. But secondly, you know, there is no shame in doing what you need to do to feed your family and, you know, and making something delicious. There's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Having gone to chef school then, when I wanted to go into catering, I mean, I didn't want to work in a restaurant. I wanted to go into catering. I wanted to give beautiful parties. That was my goal. And that's what I got to do. In the food industry, catering was looked down on. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like you saying, um, these women were feeding their families, talk about resilience, but I looked at catering as an absolute opportunity to use my cooking skills to be creative. And you're creating some of the people's weddings or people's, you know, bar mitzvahs or whatever kind of celebrations you're doing. Or I did a few funerals and the, the, the aching family was so grateful to me. Do you know what I mean? Because they were in pain and here they got to feed their friends. So when you feed people, and I think cooking is a very admirable profession. So I know what you mean about being mocked. Do you know what I mean? Because I literally had people introduce me (laughs) and say things like, well, you know, she went to chef school, but she's a caterer. Oh, no. Wow. And, yeah. And I remember thinking, what is, why are we whispering that I'm a caterer? You know what I mean? Oh, and, my goodness. I know. So, the, and a friend of mine, and this is in totally, he used to always say, oh, did he get used to it? Catering's like the asshole of the hospitality industry. And I would say, thank you. I can live without that. So, <laughs> I agree with you. 
Deb, that people are, I, I just agree that sometimes, but you know what? When you think of, and you use the word, I'm taking it right out of your article. When you think of the resilience of women, now, you know, everybody always talks about, okay, the civil war ends in the freedom. Freedom for enslaved people, how are they supposed to all of a sudden, where do they live? How do they make any money? That's I mean, right. things had been, being enslaved was immoral and horrible, but they did know where their next meal probably was coming from. Do you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> right, you're right. But I'm just saying to all of a sudden people say, here's freedom. Well, with freedom comes another bag of worries. Do you know what I mean? That Yes. I mean, no, yes. So, you know, once you're free, you do have a set of questions of what do you do? How are you going to provide for yourself and your family? Those questions do obviously come up. I mean, and, and so you kind of go with what you know, what you're, what you're skilled at, what, what have you been doing and that sort of thing. And so, you know, for women, obviously it's, you know, working in the kitchens and being domestics, domestic work. Um, and also, you know, we can talk about gender issues because that's all they were allowed to do, you know? So that's a, that's a whole, a whole nother lining and layer. You know, jobs. No job. So for women to all of a sudden, free women to be, and how tempting to bring the, the chicken, the fried chicken or their pies or anything down to the train station. I mean, that's just genius. No, it's incredibly smart. And, you know, and so and that's kind of what I wanted to get across. So not only are you resilient, but you're resourceful and creative enough to understand okay, so there's going to be people on this train who are going to be hungry and I can satisfy that need and they're going to pay me for it. I mean, that, that takes, you know, that takes some chutzpah, if you will. You it's, know? <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. When you start to do this research, so in the article you quote, how do you, how do you even start, Deb? I mean, did you old cookbooks I know can be helpful do you do you just google fried chicken I mean you know how do you be you know how did you how do you start how did you find out what you know yeah so it, it's a lot of reading so yes google plays a part but that's only the beginning like that's yeah. the first step to point me in the right direction and so then I look at academic journals I do look at cookbooks from that time period I think I talk about Mary Randolph in that mm -hmm. article um, and, and her cookbook. And, you know, and then actually I just go to the source of, of people who've been studying this. And so um, Psyche Forsen Williams, who is brilliant and amazing. Yeah. And I love her so much, her work so much. Um, she was nice enough to talk to me. And so it was really good to kind of get the background information and, and really, she was able to frame a lot of the perspectives I'm, that I'm putting forth, um, and, and which, again, she was so gracious enough to do. And so it's the combination of research, talking to people, going to cookbooks, and then trying to dig up, all right, so who said what when? You know, and piecing that all together, and then overall, putting that into a context of, okay, so why does this matter? Why is this important? And so, and that's, re but really that's the driving force behind all the academia research. It's why does this matter? And trying to get the reader to understand that this matters. It's just fried chicken, but it's not just fried chicken. That's right. That's, you said it. And I love, you know, when I was reading your article, the woman you quoted, what Psyche, that was a very unusual name. Mm -hmm. What's the name of her book? 
Do you remember? I, I do. It's called Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs. And so she's yes. an entire book yes. about this. Um, and just brilliant, just brilliant. If, if you haven't read it, and I encourage your listeners, it, it's really eye-opening when you, did, you know, kind of delve down into just, again, the res- I keep going back to that word, the resiliency, but, resourcefulness of Black women when it comes to food. Uh, to life. <laughs> <laughs> no, that too, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it, well, you're still, the article, it's in Eater. I know that it'll be on, they must have it online. Mm-hmm. The reason, Deb, we were so thrilled, and we said this before we started recording, you mentioned fried chicken, and Cindy, every time I'd say, I'll book some guests, she would say, get Deb Freeman, I bet you get Deb Freeman, and I thought, now is it Deb or the fried chicken? (laughs) Right, that's right. Do you really want me? (laughs) Somehow we're going to get fried chicken out of this, but said you were going to be working on this. And so when it, I got to read it on Facebook, it's in Eater. I know you said that, but just Eater uh, for them for publishing it. And there's a fabulous graphic. Deb, mm. I absolutely love the graphic. It's just charming that someone did. Deb is also has a podcast called Setting the Table. I listened to a couple of them, Deb. They were absolutely fabulous. How many did you record? 12? A dozen? 10 for the first season. The first season. Um, we're coming back next year for season two, so I, so which is super exciting. But first of all, thank you so much for listening. I'm so oh. thankful. <laughs> no, honey, it's... Uh, well, you tell us. Tell us a little bit about setting the table because sure. that will help other people. Yeah, so setting the table um, really establishes the, you know, the academic argument, if you will, that really that Black people created what we know as American food today. And so that's a grandiose statement on its face, but each episode takes a different food or a different topic that explains, one, why that's important to American food, but two, what Black people have done in those areas. So baking, distilling, brewing, um, farming, barbecue, you know, so all of these different topics are direct linked to what Black people have done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, you know, that's hard to do in a half an hour or so. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was fortunate enough to talk to people like Mashama Bailey and, and um, oh my goodness, and Chris Scott and just really lovely people who are able to speak from their perspectives of, as professionals about each of those topics. Carla Hall was amazing. Oh, I, I talked to her about baking. She was just, she shut it down. <laughs> I have to go back and listen. I'll have to go listen to, I didn't see Carla's, maybe Carla's wasn't up when I was there. I'll have to go back. That yeah. sounds wonderful. How wonderful. Um, well, I'm glad you have a season two. Thank you. Now, are you from Virginia? You were born and raised there. Yeah, I was actually born in Pennsylvania, but raised um, when I was very young, went to Virginia. And so so I I claim Virginia because that's where I grew up and in my formative years and all that. So yeah, Virginia is, is definitely home. Have you written about Virginia barbecue? Yes. <laughs> and I laugh. The reason I laugh is because yeah, it's so funny. I have eaten so much barbecue 
<laughs> and I've written so much about Virginia Barbecue that's kind of like, yes, yes, I have. <laughs> I just was tempting the listeners. <laughs> I'm going to tell you because, again, now Cindy called me a gray-haired stalker before we started. I don't think that was very polite at all. But, Deb, I'm fascinated, fascinated by the... And you talk about it, the intersection of, you know, African-American foodways just in America, in America, I'm talking about in America. And of course, I'm always fascinated by this, not just because you, when I, I probably already said this once before, but the time I was in Kenya and Tanzania, and when I went to Africa and then down to Johannesburg, sometimes something came on the plate and I knew that it had come from India. Do you see what I'm saying? That food came directly from India because when they built railroads in Africa, there was a huge Indian population. And of course, as we know, just like in California, the Chinese migration here. Well, the Chinese have been everywhere because they worked on the railroads. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you go into parts of France and I would be, I was taking a cooking class and they had thrown some rice Mm. And like the quiche Lorraine and the French cooking teacher, I said, what's this rice doing in there? She said, ah, the Chinese were here. <laughs> you know, but she meant it that so they grew their rice. So then when they adapted to French, yep. just they put rice in it because, you know, how great. And it was, it was great in the custard and it probably saved them a little bit of, you know, custard sure. or setting it up. Do you know what I mean? How yeah, yeah. So, but whenever I look at any plate, I'm, I want to know where that food came from. Do you mm -hmm. know? What I, mean? I want to know how it, how it ended up on my plate. So I think yeah. that's why I'm so, I'm entranced with your, um, the name of your podcast, Setting the Table, because that's exactly what happens. Now, he's the publisher of one of the magazines she writes for, and also it's your boyfriend, but I gave her, there are a couple, and she said they're Facebook official. I had to get permission before I said that because I didn't know, but tell me about this seed heritage thing that I saw for a minute on your page, because that, isn't it today or tomorrow? It's coming so, up. Saturday. It's Saturday. Oh, so, Saturday. Great. So yeah, people can yeah, dig so Seed Savers Exchange was kind enough to ask uh, Josh, Josh and I to, to basically talk about our heirloom seed journey, if you will, yeah. <laughs> um, and basically going up and down the East Coast um, about a year ago, basically looking for seeds. So, and, and squeeze watermelons that we could find. And so we drove to Delaware, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Maryland, um, North Carolina, South Carolina. We basically <laughs> put a lot of miles on the car and it was a lot of Arby's. Um, and basically we were like, we've got to track down these watermelons, these heirloom watermelons that some, you know, have been around for hundreds of years. And then um, I will say he took it a step further and um, planted watermelons and, you know, planted these heirloom seeds and with great success, I must say. Um, <laughs> and here's the thing, they're enormous, but they're also sweet, which you usually don't find that combination. And so he, he has really become, you know, he has found his calling in a lot of ways. And, and he's incredibly good at it. And um, I, I can't say enough about it. It's, you know, the watermelons this year are doing great. <laughs> so um, that we've seen little baby ones as of this morning. So uh, super, super excited. So, I mean, everything from, you know, Alibaba watermelons, which were from Iraq, 
uh, to the Red and Sweet, which you can only find in one place in Louisiana. You cannot find it anywhere else. We drove down there to get that watermelon. We planted those seeds this year. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a little bit of an obsession. At this I point. love it. So that's what you're talking about. Now tell me the correct name. So the correct name of what you're doing Saturday. It's it's Zoom. People can go to the event or sign up for it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, Seed Savers Exchange um, is, and that's the name of the group. And um, they ha they have a massive seed catalog. And so, like I said, they were nice enough to ask us to be the keynote speakers, which is kind of like what. Um, <laughs> Any two people that will drive to that many states looking for watermelon seeds. Yeah, I think you're exactly what makes a keynote speaker. You know, Deb, when my husband and I wanted to get married, so it's both of us is our second marriage. Mm -hmm. We've both been divorced for like, we had, we had, we were carrying exit signs around our necks when we went on our first date, okay, with an arrow. <laughs> We both of us looked at each other and said, yeah, I'll go on a date, but we both murmuring to all our friends, I'm never gonna get married again. I mean, mm -hmm. we just were like that. But I said to him, he said, so then we decided, uh, all of a sudden we thought we might get married. But so I'm still kind of testing him. And I said to him, well, I wanna get married in Europe. He said, okay. So he looked into France too hard. He looked into Italy, he could do it. We could do that. We get the paperwork at the embassy here and stuff. Then I said to him, well, you know what? I want to stay for a month if we're going that far. So we should rent a motor home. Oh my gosh. And all my friends said, oh, I see you. You're the Griswolds to Venice, okay? <laughs> and my friends made fun of me. I mean, people said things like, Denise, this just is not your style. I said, but you know what we learned? That if you can be in a motor home with someone for 30 days, Sharing that chemical toilet, you deserve to get married. And or as one of my best friends said to me, you two deserve each other. <laughs> so I know why those people asked you to be keynote speakers because you, you guys, I mean, it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. I'd I'd heard about this years ago. I only from people that are friends of mine that are gardeners, not about watermelon. Mm -hmm about how many seeds, and of course it's big agra, I guess, seeds that had disappeared because they didn't produce enough crops or isn't that the story of our, the problems we have in food now? I mean. Absolutely, and, and when I was on last time, I mean, it, you, you completely got it. It's that because things weren't big agras, you know, profit, 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 profit. taste is secondary, so. Basically, we, as Americans, and I hate to say this, but you know, when we go to the grocery store, it's all about the biggest strawberry or the biggest vegetable or fruit there is. And sometimes, and so they're breeding them to look a certain way, but not taste a certain way. And when I was in Paris a couple months ago, just looking at the difference in produce was shocking. I mean, I, you know, it was shocking to grow it and taste the difference last year. In the year before, but to go to another country and go to a supermarket that was not, you know, your Whole Foods high-end kind of store, just the corner store on the street. And I'm like, why is this 15 times better than what I'm getting at my local supermarket? And it's, it's just, it's what you just said. It's all about profit and big agri. With saying that, Deb, mm -hmm. when you say that, and I, which was, is the basis so much of French food and, and the, you know, 
we don't value our food here in America. We oh want God. a lot of it. It's like, and we want it to be cheap and we want it to not have any spots. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, spots meaning a bruise on it. We don't want it to be a funny shape. Right, right. But like seconds, number twos. And I grew up in the grocery business because my dad owned a few small independent market. But no one ever talks about this, the flavor, as you just said, but also when you see those huge portions of food that we get and cheaper restaurants, mm-hmm. I feel like that, like you looking in the market, I think I'd like to have half this much food, but have it taste better. And exactly. it, that's all. And it's just, it's, it's become a way of life for us and we have allowed it. So oh, until consumers start saying no, do you know what I mean? They, until they stop saying, I'm not going to buy that, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to keep getting that because that's what we've, we've created our own monster. I mean, we have created this monster. Absolutely. And I think that's why there's such a movement of people who are now growing their own vegetables and really trying to, you know, produce, maybe not on a farm scale, of course, but on some level trying to take control over what they're eating so that it, well, one, inevitably in the end, it's not going to cost you six dollars for a cucumber i mean you have to pay for seeds and dirt and that whole thing but inevitably you have control over what you're eating you can see what you're eating and putting in your body and it's going to taste better that's right which for me of course i'm just like number one Um, but but yeah it's it's a very real thing that i think a lot of people are starting to to open their eyes to i think you're absolutely right now what i want to know is how is your how is your research going on Bertie Brown, the woman in Montana, and have you gotten a bottle of the bourbon? And so, tell us about that because see this oh is just distillery. This was a, now this is again. I never thought about it. Okay, I never thought about where bourbon. I mean, I've been to Kentucky and I've seen these fancy distilleries they've made now and blah blah blah. Before I'd heard about Uncle Nearest, the Mm. bourbon, which was brilliantly done because the young woman who became the publicist for them that brought it to the public's eye, of course it was a black man that was making the bourbon. He was the dist... So other than the fact that we've kind of stolen the entire... We've taken all the um, glory (laughs) from other people. I don't know how else to say that. but having been a food stylist, I, I can say that because I know a whole lot of people on TV that I made look good, Deb, so I can understand <laughs> the stealing. I can understand, but I was at least getting paid. Okay, that's different. So right. tell us about when I read the part, when I saw it on Facebook and it was talking about Bertie Brown, mm-hmm. tell me about Bertie Brown, tell us all. So th- this is such a wild, wild story. I'm so glad you asked me about it because I get so excited talking about Bertie Brown. So. Bertie Brown, so picture this, right? So Montana, we're talking, you know, right before pre, uh, Prohibition, so after the Civil War, there's actually several African-American women 
who basically, once the 14th Amendment is ratified and, and, and Black people are considered full citizens, they apply for homesteads in Montana. So first of all, never occurred to me, never thought about homesteading Black people, never ever thought about this. And so this one particular woman jumped out at me. She applied for you know her homestead. She was accepted. She had something like 130 acres. It was huge. But it's, essentially she started moonshining so she's creating moonshine from the river that's in the the back of her house and and so she was known for it. she became so popular for it because at that time you know if you drank the wrong moonshine you would go blind so it was a little bit of a dangerous business right so she was known for her hospitality for welcoming people and and that whole thing and so that really started a very deep dive into Black women spirits, but also, to be honest, provide a deep dive into Montana and Black homesteaders. Yeah. And there are, there are quite a few of them. And thinking past that, to be single Black in Montana, Thank you. that you're creating a homestead. And so for people, you know, I never really thought about it. So you are basically managing this land to make it workable by yourself. I <laughs> overwhelming. to me. That's crazy. It's and overwhelming I, today, let alone mm -hmm, exactly 200 years ago, and that you know how to make moonshine. Exactly, exactly. And so Bertie is one of those women that I came across. And I'm like, I need to tell her story. And so there is a company that um, they have done a series of moonshines. Uh, well, they're not moonshine, they're, they're whiskeys, but um, they've done a series basically honoring women moonshiners, yeah. right? And so my bottle should be here Saturday. Super, <laughs> I have the FedEx notification. Um, and so I'm really excited to try it. It's um, actually using the same water that Birdie used, which is insane. Um, so I cannot wait to, to try that. And Can I buy a bottle off the link that was on your Facebook page? Absolutely, absolutely. St. Liberty. Um, and then there's another company, uh, Sip Birdies. Um, so, but they're actually making moonshine. So you've got whiskey and a moonshine, but the moonshiners are actually using Birdies recipe, which is amazing. Wow. And so, so yeah. Highly recommend it. Well, in theory, I haven't tasted it yet, <laughs> but but I'm super excited. And, and what's really cool about the St. Liberty bottles, they're using the same type of bottle that you would have had in the 1920s. So, so it's not going to look like other bottles that you yes. see on the market yes. today. Okay, I have to take it. Because <laughs> that sounds like, and what a fun, how wonderful. And what a fun, and to toast Birdie when you're doing it. Now, this is my last question for you, Deb. And mm -hmm. I cannot thank you enough for coming back. We always put all your information up. How do you make, do you make fried chicken? Um, actually, <laughs> I do not. <laughs> and I have to tell you, and this is the, only, the reason why I'm laughing is everyone assumes because I'm Italian that I make incredible raviolis. Mm -hmm. Now, I made raviolis much like croissants once in my life. And I thought, oh, well, this is a whole lot of work. Okay, not sure I'm doing this again. <laughs> then when I retired, I bought myself one of those little fancy pasta machines. 
I'm blowing the dust off of it yeah, because I have, and I'd said to Cindy, oh, I'm going to make my own pasta. And I would just, no, I haven't. Okay. I cook Italian food, but I'm not making my own pasta yet. I seem to be perfectly happy buying a, you know, uh, Rayo's pasta, the good, the restaurant <laughs> New York makes a good mm -hmm. one. Oh, yeah. I can, and I, it's delicious. So that's why I asked you. I actually, I think what we're going to do, I'm going to put, when your podcast goes up, if you don't mind, I'm going to put my fried chicken recipe up. Yeah. Yeah. And Cindy and I, and the reason is Cindy and I put it in a newsletter and I have it, Cindy. So I, I even, I just saw it somewhere recently, so I'm sure I can find it. But it was my mother's fried chicken recipe. Oh, wow. And um, and she, I'm knowing my mother, her mother was a terrible cook, oh. but my mother made fabulous fried chicken because she used Crisco. Now I know people yeah. use lesson oil, but my mother used plain old shortening that she melted. Wow. In she melted it in, and don't laugh at me, but I have one. Before you were born, Deb, they had things called electric skillets. <laughs> And you plugged it in and it's an appliance. I mean, they've kind of fallen out of favor, but they keep, now they make those fryers and stuff that are fabulous. Mm. But they keep the temperature at the constant. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. So you, okay. you melt the Crisco and then you can fry your chicken and taking pieces in and out, the oil doesn't drop. And I mm. do, I bought myself one, but it's just a plain old, it's, it's, um, fried chicken and it's lots of salt and pepper and the flour and uh, an egg. We do an egg, flour, egg, and then breadcrumbs. I think that's what I do. And it's pretty right. damn delicious. Oh, I, I would like this recipe. I'm going to try. Okay. I'm not very well, good at it, so I'm going to try. Okay. Well, it's really, to, to me, the temperature control of mm. anything when you're frying. And I have a beautiful big black cast iron skillet that was my grandfather's that I use for so many things, but I think I'm going to make fried chicken with my um, electric skillet that I bought myself. <laughs> Please let me know how that turns out. And, and of course, if you play your cards right, you could inherit a pasta machine. Okay, now let's <laughs> Unless you take a deep dive into pasta for some reason, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get there. Deb, thank you so much. You are a fountain of information. You're absolutely charming. And I cannot thank you enough. And I want people to go look up, um, go on your Facebook page so they can see your postings, so they can go right to the articles and read them. Because it really, it's, I, I think, again, it's worth repeating. Freedom, finances, and fried chicken. It's, a, it's an incredible story. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're always a delight. Thank you so much. Well, I'll tell you something, honey. I have nothing but admiration for you because resilience is the name of the game. That's true. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you're still nice. Someone asked me, they said, but Denise, you're resilient. I said, yeah, but I, people beat the niceness out of me years ago. <laughs> not funny but it's true Cindy's laughing Cindy's going yeah well okay you can't have everything thank you Deb now if yeah. you want to reach us it's woman beyond at icloud.com reach out to us with a message reach out to us with um comments Deb's information Cindy does it all it will all be on um our web page so if people want to reach out uh to Deb and find out what she's up to next <laughs> 
<laughs> There's always something. Oh, I'm, you're busy, girl. I'm proud of you. You're busy. Thank, Thank you so you. much for your time. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And if it's a bit up to Cindy, we'll get to see you again. <laughs> I'll, I'm here whenever you need me. Thanks, honey. We'll talk to you again about distillery and Bertie Brown. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Miss Cindy, for everything you do. Um, I was going to say, I always say Cindy keeps the train on the tracks, but I think I'll start saying Cindy keeps the plane on the runway. I was thinking that maybe I'll make it more dramatic. That is dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. Just you keep me from um, going in the bay like in San Francisco where the runway gets really short if you're not a good pilot. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not fun. Thank you both. Talk to you again. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Right. Bye.